Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. The Fed, we got minutes coming out today, Matt, 2 p.m. Wall Street time. Uh, rates are going up. Balance sheet's going to be wound Not just down. any minutes, though. Okay. Minutes that Jerome Powell said were going to be important. You know, he recommended that we read these minutes. Really? Do I have to yeah. do that? Well, you don't have to. Can but I someone at Bloomberg News that? is going to do it for okay, you. Okay, someone at Bloomberg News can do that yeah. for me. All right, let's get a little bit of a roundtable going here, Matt, because there's a lot to break down when we think about this Federal Reserve and what they're going to be doing for the remainder of this year into next. Former New York Fed President Bill Dudley joins us, as well as Bloomberg News Editor-in-Chief Matt Winkler joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, emeritus, absolutely. Founder of Bloomberg. Creator. News. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Bill, thanks so much for joining us via Zoom here. You know, a lot of investors are saying, you know, I think the Fed is still behind the curve here, even if we're talking multiple rate hikes, 50 basis points here, 50 basis points there. What's your view? Of course, they're far behind the yield curve, uh, far behind the curve in terms of tightening monetary policy. Look at where short-term interest rates are relative to inflation. Look at where short-term interest rates are relative to how tight the labor market is. Uh, the Fed basically says we want to be at neutral, uh, and they're not even close to that. So they're going going to go very fast this year towards neutral over the next uh, you know nine months. What is neutral, Bill? Well, neutral obviously does depend a bit on where inflation settles out. Uh, if, if, if the Fed was at their 2% inflation objective, then neutral would be around 2.5% in terms of nominal short-term interest rates. But if inflation is higher, neutral is higher as well. So it's also going to be important where we see inflation settle out. Matt, what do you think about um, – it does seem that everyone's turned very hawkish and uh, – inflate. Uh, sorry, employment – um, went from being questionable as to whether it's full. Now, um, Daly yesterday said it's tight, a very tight labor market. So I think the best way to look at this from the Fed's perspective is if you take a look at uh, their preferred monthly measure of inflation, which is the U.S. Personal Consumption Expenditure Core Price Index, which if you juxtaposed it with the $30 trillion bond market's expectation of inflation, and uh, what that shows is 10-year break-even rate or yield gap between the benchmark treasury and uh, what we call treasury inflation protection securities, or TIPS. The Fed inflation measure shows us every day through yesterday, while the bond market anticipates all the days to come. And what we see is that between the second half of last year and today is an increase in inflation to 5.4 percent. It's the highest since 1983. Bond investors, on the other hand, see inflation at about 3%. So this is a record divergence. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, since Bill and I started talking about such things more than three decades ago, <laughs> um, you look at something else that's relevant, which is the Fed's own survey, the February survey of consumer expectations. And it shows consumers anticipate inflation subsiding to 3.8% in three years. Um, so, you know, before you go any further, I would ask Bill, he has said, you have said, Bill, consistently that the Fed is behind the curve. So what's wrong with these pictures? Well, the market is basically assuming that the Federal Reserve is ultimately gonna do their job. Uh, they may have gotten a late start, but they now are moving pretty rapidly in the tightening direction. So the market's 
view, I think, is that the Federal Reserve will, in fact, get this done. Um, I think that's probably right. I think the big risk, though, to the downside is that whenever the Fed has had to tighten sufficiently to push the unemployment rate up, the U.S. economy has always fallen into recession. Now, I'm not looking for a recession anytime soon because monetary policy first has to get to be tight. But I do think that the chances of the Fed pulling off a soft landing this time are, are very, very low at this point. Wait, so you don't see a recession in the next, say, 12 to 18 months? Certainly not in the next 12 months. Uh, the U.S. economy has a lot of momentum behind it as we're, as we're going into the opening up stage. Uh, so you've seen, seen the strength in payroll employment over the last few months. We also have an imbalance in a lot of areas between demand and supply where demand exceeds supply. So even if the Fed knocks back demand a little bit, uh, supply is going to continue to you know, recover as supply chains uh, are normalized. And that, uh, so I think the yeah. economy has quite a bit of momentum over the next 12 months or so. So I think there's a recession coming. I don't think it's in the near term. And that's, by the way, consistent. You know, if you look at the Bloomberg Zone survey of 57 economists, and it shows no consensus for that outcome, a recession, at least before the fourth quarter of 2023. And you can see that we have a table that shows the average GDP forecast for each quarter in the next eight quarters ranges from 2.3% to 4.5%. And even the lowest forecast in the eight quarters that we're talking about ranges from half a percent to 3.2%. So in other words, the worst of these scenarios, which we've compiled, doesn't anticipate a recession. And you've written about the strength of corporate America as well. I think a couple of columns ago you had, uh, had been quoting uh, the business roundtable um, and also the most recent earnings releases saying that, you know, companies are looking to hire more than they ever have before. That's absolutely right. Um, you know, if you went to the business roundtable, which is the 200, if you like, most prominent uh, companies, CEOs, and they said they anticipated this year hiring more people than they have in you know the past two decades, which is saying a lot. And then if you look at something like debt ratios of American companies, even with all the record corporate borrowing that we've seen, because interest rates have been so low, the debt ratios yep. uh, show that companies are actually very healthy. So it's not like we're coming out of, if you will, the financial crisis, uh, which Bill is all too familiar with because he was and consumers he was managing it back that's then. That's right. And consumer balance sheets are healthy as yep. well. So I mean, Bill, it's safe to say there will be a recession someday. But what pushes us in uh, to a recession? Um, you know, even if the Fed raises aggressively, we're going from uh, um, as close to zero as yep. as damn it, I think the English would say. Um, and, uh, you know, the, if the neutral rate is where 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 you think would you think the neutral rate is um, right now? Well, again, it depends on where you think recession is. Right. But would you hazard a guess and estimate? Uh, well, no. I think I think neutral today is probably you know three and a half ish because wow. inflation is above the Fed's two percent uh, objective. I think the problem for the Fed is this: whenever the Fed the Fed needs to make the labor market looser if it's going to actually get control of inflation. To make the labor market looser, it has to tighten sufficiently to push the unemployment rate up. Whenever the Fed has pushed the unemployment rate up, it's been very difficult to control how much. Every time this has happened, the U.S. economy has ultimately ended in recession. So don't get me wrong. The Fed's going to try for a soft landing. That's what they're going to try for. And, of course, they have to do that if they're going to try to control inflation. The problem is almost always they overdo it and the economy dips into recession. So 
if you don't mind, Bill, let's let's go back in time. You probably have as much experience with inflation and deflation in our time as any economist. And during your leadership at the New York Fed, you persistently defended quantitative easing when so many critics derided QE as irresponsibly inflationary mm -hmm. and a debasement of the dollar. The critics were wrong. When Janet Yellen became Fed chair in 2014, unemployment and the labor participation rate were still anemic. She said, and you agreed with her at that time, that the economy needed to run a little hot to get to an optimal job market. So just last Friday, we learned the U.S. gained 431,000 jobs in March. Unemployment fell to 3.6 percent. The revision was yep. big as well. Average yeah. hourly earnings registered a 5.6 percent increase from the same period last year, and the labor participation rate rose significantly. So I guess... Bill, why is Brad DeLong wrong when he said recently it's time for another victory lap led <laughs> by the Fed? Well, they deserve a victory lap in terms of uh, getting generating a strong economic recovery and getting us back to full employment quickly. The problem now, though, is that they're behind in terms of where they need to be relative to what the labor market is. <clears throat> if the Fed wants to sustain the economic expansion, it's got to keep inflation under control. And to keep inflation under control, they have to tighten monetary policy. So, you know, I think the problem for the Fed here was that they uh, adopted a monetary policy framework that they operationalized by saying we're not going to even begin to lift off until we've actually reached 2% inflation. We're confident inflation is going to be above 2% in the future. And we're confident that we're at full employment. So we find ourselves in this unusual circumstance that at a time where monetary policy needs to be neutral or tight, the Fed still is on a very, very accommodative monetary setting. There's a real big gap today between where the Fed should be and where it is. How much of this, Matt, is about monetary policy? Because there was such a huge fiscal impetus when, when Bill says the Fed did a great job getting us back to full employment. It seems to me the five, six trillion dollars that the U.S. government spent was also helpful. And I noticed yesterday in the Esther George interview that Michael McKee did, she said, um, you know, the fiscal impetus is going to wane here. Well, that's definitely true. I mean, and there's been considerable discussion about to what extent did the Relief Act last year uh, have on inflation? And there are plenty of economists who say not that much. Um, and, you know, frankly, uh, to credit Bill, he has been very consistent going back at least a couple years and saying the Fed really needs to get on the escalator um, and that we are going to see, you know, higher interest rates. It's just a question of when, but they have to get there. So I'm not so sure it's so much a fiscal issue here uh, with respect to inflation. It's more the latter coming out of, uh, you know, this expansion and, uh, you know, interest rates need yep. to come up. So that's kind of where I wanted to go, Bill. I mean, it, it, the inflation that I experience, I'm sure many Americans experience, it's at the gas pump. It's at the supermarket. It's maybe at the local uh, deli. Um, but a lot of that is just supply and demand in an economy where I've got a global reopening economy. You know, I've got these crazy supply chain issues that are vexing all types of industries. In that scenario, what can the Fed really do in terms of inflation? Well, the supply chains, that has to be has to be patient. But the problem we have with inflation now is not just about supply chain disruptions, because we've seen the inflation pressure broaden out. So if you look at, uh, for example, the Cleveland Fed or the Dallas Fed, that have measures of median CPI, uh, trim mean, uh, they basically show that the pressures are now much broader than they were earlier. So it's not just a question okay. of used car prices going up because there's 
chip shortages that are inhibiting new car production. It's much broader than that. And I think, you know, the wage strain, I think, is also, you know, relevant here. You know, if you ask yourself what wage inflation rate is consistent with 2% inflation, you wouldn't pick 55 to 6%. You'd pick something in the probably the 3 to 4% range. So the wage trend already is higher than what's consistent with 2% inflation. I do wish the Fed could somehow get General Motors to produce more Sierra <laughs> 1500, you know, AT4Xs. Right. If the Fed could just supply them with the microchips, you know, maybe. The, the price increase has been insane, by the way. I've come back just a few months ago. I've been looking at trucks and trucks that were $55,000 in January became $60,000 in February. Now they're $65,000. This is new MSRP. It's unbelievable. But there's not much the Fed can really do about that, Matt. Well, what the Fed will pay attention to, as they should, is expectations. And the one variable here that is somewhat encouraging is that we are not seeing yet built into this market the expectation like we did in the 70s that everything is going to go up um, and our behavior is measured by that. Uh, we're not there yet. So Will we been, get there, do you think? Hopefully not. Bill, ask, yeah, ask will Bill. we get he there? Let me ask Bill. Yeah, Bill, are we going to get to that spot? I mean, I mean, I think I think Matt's exactly right. That is the the positive in the in the outlook is okay. that inflation expectations are still pretty well anchored, and you could argue that's actually a little bit of a surprise. I mean, if you sort of looked at what's actually happening to, in terms of inflation and how slow the Fed has been to react, it's quite striking that market participants and households and businesses still are comfortable that the Fed is ultimately going to do their job. This is precisely what you've been writing, Matt. Well, yeah, it could be a semantic discussion, but I've been saying that it's kind of hard for me to accept the fact that when the Fed is data dependent, which means that the data changes, the Fed changes, that it's behind the curve. And right. of course, Bill and the majority <laughs> of economists say, no, 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 they're behind the curve. They're behind the curve. All right. That's fantastic. Bill Dudley, thank you so much for joining us. Former New York Fed President uh, Bill Dudley and Bloomberg News Editor-in-Chief Emeritus founder of Bloomberg News, Matt Winkler, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, fascinating discussion on what we're going to see from this Federal Reserve going forward. Again, FOMC meetings, uh, meeting minutes will be released today at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. Time to get uh, the update uh, that I think we all need on Ukraine. It is a fluid situation Certainly, and some of the images coming out of uh, parts of Ukraine are very, very disturbing. Let's bring in Anne-Marie Hordern, Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television. Anne-Marie, thanks so much for joining us here. It, it feels, what's the, I guess I'll just step back and say, what's really the latest thinking from Washington, D.C. about how this situation in the Ukraine can go, will go, and maybe how we should be continuing to engage? Well, Jake Sullivan recently in a briefing was saying that they see some tactical changes in, in Russia and that there's going to be a focus more on eastern and southern Ukraine, specifically, especially making sure they can maintain that stronghold in Luhansk and Donetsk. But what is very clear, and you just need to turn on your television or open up Twitter to see, is that the assaults on the Russian cities and the attacks on civilians, it's not just Bucha, it's Mariupol, it's a number of cities, that continues every day and uh so it continues in a nasty nasty way and i know the mm -hmm. atrocities are we're, we are alleging that russians committed atrocities they're saying that the photographic and video evidence has been faked somehow um 
But are Western governments prepared to really take the final step? We can say we're not going to buy any coal from Russia anymore. That's easy because we don't want coal and we have enough coal ourselves. Yeah. Um, but saying for Germany to say we refuse to pay hundreds of billions for natural gas, that's that's a big step to take. It would be a big step to take. And also, are they prepared to take that step in the sense that not just morally prepared, which I think they wish they were at, uh, or, or they are at, excuse me, but in terms of the infrastructure, I think they wish they were there. Because Schultz has said today, uh, the German chancellor, that what is going on and the image that Abucha these are war crimes. So you do see Germany wanting to ratchet up that pressure and really hurt Russia for what is going on. The issue is they're just way too reliant. What we can potentially see is individual European states coming out and unilaterally going further. I know Lithuania is tiny, but they did this themselves. Potentially, maybe you'll see other Baltic countries do this themselves because it is going to take a while to get all 27 European countries to agree on this. Right. Well, and most of them are so small that it doesn't matter, right? Germany is the biggest economy in Europe. Um, 80 million people, and they uh, get, I think, 60% of their energy needs from Russian gas. So the idea is they're willing to hurt uh, Russia, but they're not willing to hurt themselves no. quite yet. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing is the Ukrainians would ask why, you know, you're watching these atrocities. Why haven't you done more? Like, at least give us a no-fly zone, right? And NATO's response is, well, we don't want to directly engage Russia because there goes World War III. Mm -hmm. um, you have been uh, really excellent in your coverage of Mikhail Khodorkovsky. For those who don't know, he was once Russia's richest man. He was a billionaire who ran Yukos Oil, and he was politically opposed to Putin. Um, that didn't go well. He was accused of tax evasion to the tune of something like $20 billion, and then spent 10 years in a gulag. Um, now he's out, and he's very vocal about um, obviously his criticism of Vladimir Putin, but he said something really interesting yesterday, which is that the West is already engaged with Russia. Yes. At yes. least from Putin's perspective, Khodorkovsky says we're already, he thinks the West is already in a war against him. Yes, Mikhail Khodorkovsky is very interesting to talk to because you really can understand the thinking of the Russian elite and also the thinking of President Putin and the Kremlin. And he says from Putin's eyes, the United States, Western allies, are already at war with Russia. And he says this is a mistake that the West does not realize. And they do not understand that that is Putin's perspective. And a lot of the time what you hear from Western leaders is, you know, we will defend NATO every single inch. But this is almost a nuance that doesn't even filter into Putin's mind. He already thinks he's there and he's fighting a war with America. And if you look at any Russian state TV, that is also the sense that you get that this is a U.S.-backed war, Western-backed war, um, against Russia and Ukraine. So, Henry, what's the feeling in Washington these days about next steps for the U.S. and maybe uh, the U.S. as it relates to NATO? Is there any consensus as to what we should do, I guess, next? More? Better? Bigger? Well, just in the past hour, we got a brief on the latest sanctions, so still more economic sanctions, and those included a full-blocking sanctions on Spurbank, which is Russia's biggest bank, as well as Alpha Bank, but again, they include energy carve-outs, so it really comes 
full circle to the start of this conversation with when is Germany and Europe going to get on board with or be able to block Russian oil and gas. He also, uh, we also have sanctions on Putin's two adult children, uh, Katerina and Maria. Interesting enough, Putin has gone through great lengths his entire life to really cloud them in secrecy. Uh, so quite symbolic, but also very personal, and also a ban on investments in Russia. But just to, to take it back to Mihail Khodorkovsky, because I spent more than an hour with him yesterday, and he's in Washington meeting with officials as well. He says that Putin is not afraid of sanctions. Sanctions alone cannot deter Putin. And the idea of going after the oligarchs, you know, makes sense. But the presumption that they can have a change on Putin is just not there. And maybe the West thinks that could happen, but he says that is just not how Russia works. It is a complete dictatorship. Well, some have said that, you know, these sanctions aren't so much to deter Putin as to make the West feel better about ourselves. Right. Yeah. Interesting to see. It's a very difficult situation. Anne-Marie Hordern. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. We love getting uh, your perspective from Washington, D.C. Anne-Marie Hordern, Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television, has that uh, story out on the Bloomberg Terminal with her uh, uh, interview with that ex-oligarch uh, from Russia who Anne-Marie uh, said is in Washington uh, making the rounds there. So uh, appreciate getting her perspective there. There's M&A activity. There's some consolidation going on in the uh, airline business today. Got JetBlue taking a look. Um, at the business as well, looking to make a bid for Spirit. George Ferguson, the fourth, by the way, senior aerospace defense and airlines analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence joins us. So, From George, military intelligence to Bloomberg intelligence. intelligence. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah, George was in the Army and military intelligence. That tells you all we need to know about our military, is what I always say. George, thanks so much for joining us here. What's JetBlue's, what's the strategy here? Why does it want to own uh, Spirit Airlines? Yeah, so thanks for having me. Yeah, um, so... I really think, you know, JetBlue has spent, you know, a number of years, um, a lot of years, sort of on the periphery of the business, right? There's, uh, you know, the main carriers. You have, uh, you know, you have uh, American United, Delta, the big full-service carriers. you got, you got uh, Southwest. And JetBlue and Alaska have had this smaller role in the marketplace. And I think JetBlue is looking at Spirit and Frontier getting together, thinking about how rough that's going to be on competition, thinking about where their position in the industry is, is, maybe even their ability to grow because their their order book just isn't as, as large as Spirits and Frontiers um, a couple of years into the future. And they're thinking this is their opportunity to try to get in the mix because otherwise they're going to be fighting against a really intense competitor of a combined Spirit and, uh, and Frontier. George, how much competition is really allowed in the U.S. market? When I um, lived here, I... Uh, I didn't think about it much. I moved to Germany, back to Germany in uh, 2016, spent uh, six years there, and I've just come back. And I realized, um, I thought, why did I travel so much in Europe? Every weekend I was in Rome, I was in Paris, I was in Madrid. I was all over the place. And the reason is plane tickets were like sometimes 20 euros, (laughs) you know, but they weren't more than 100 euros in any direction, usually. And here in the U.S., that's just not the case, not by a long shot. Is that how, – how has that competition been stifled here? Yeah, so uh, the U.S. has been a more consolidated market than the rest of the world, uh, you know, especially sort of Europe. Uh, I shouldn't say the rest of the world, than Europe. Um, and, you know, I think Europe also has a different phenomenon where there's more vacation – and so if you got five or six weeks of vacation, you take more trips. Like Matt does. And you, you know, you, 
Yeah, like Matt, as in, and you know, Matt, you you wanted to spend fifty euros on the flight and spend the rest of the money in Barcelona rather than spend it on the flight. Where Americans kind of get two to three weeks, they might do one flight a year, um, you know, and and they're kind of I think willing to pay a little more. Although Spirit and Frontier are the ones testing that model, right? They're testing the idea that Americans might be willing, might desire to pay a lot less and get less in their flight. But there is less competition. Do you, do you think that consumer behavior could be different post-pandemic? You know, we've seen things like the Great Resignation, which we're still trying to figure out. Is it possible that consumers are like, you know what? I'm 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 working from home now, or some kind of hybrid model. I'm I'm demanding 30 days off a year, and I'm gonna travel. I'm gonna go see the Grand Canyon. I'm gonna go to Joshua Tree on shrooms or whatever. <laughs> and I mean, they're gonna be taking more flights. I, I I think so. I hope so. I think the other big part of this is, um, I mean, because, look, first, we, we do have to change some of the U.S. employer behavior to give you a little more time off, or I guess we all call it working from home as you're flying somewhere, which I guess is, you know, if Wi-Fi is good enough in the airplane, maybe you get away with that. But the other big thing that we're looking at is just that the consumer pocketbook is going to be pressured here, right? The price of fuel is... Um, you know, fuel and heating oil, and uh, and it's going to ripple through the economy is is just astronomical right now, and that's going to pressure their pocketbook. And so the consumer is going to go out and say, "I want to go on vacation, but I'm, I can't spend a lot of money getting there." Oh, look at Spirit and Frontier, the, you know, whatever the combined company might be called, uh, if it gets done. Oh, they've got a flight for forty dollars. I'll do that, right? I, I, I can suck up the fact that I'm not going to get any recline on my seat on the on the way to Vegas or something like that. So that's the challenge. The consumer is going to be pressured here. And that's why – that's the really interesting thing about this merger – or sorry, this, this purchase of JetBlue. <clears throat> JetBlue wants to take Spirit and turn it into JetBlue. Now, look, I think JetBlue's got a great product, but I think that the consumer is, is – again, pressured consumer is going to say – just give me the cheapest ticket price, not giving me, give me, you know, airline CEOs love to talk about sort of the quality of the product, the product experience. People just want to get there. Then they want to have fun. And I think that's, that's the interesting part of this is that JetBlue wants to turn spirit into JetBlue, which I think will be very challenging. Too. George, 30 seconds. Does this deal get past the regulators? I do think it will get past the regulators. I don't think any of these airlines are so important to the U.S. economy, have so much market share anywhere that it can't get done. All right, George, good stuff. Appreciate that. George Ferguson, Senior Aerospace Defense and Airline Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's been covering these stocks for decades. Back to work, getting back to the office. Uh, New York businesses, they're figuring out how to go. You're bringing people back how many days? Well, when they deal with that, they've also got some new legislation that they have to think about in terms of whistleblower protections, some new legislation coming there, as well as disclosing salaries for external and internal job posting. So some new regulations coming. Question is, how will some of these businesses deal with that? We welcome Renia Sedholm, managing partner of the Sedholm Law Group. So Renia, talk to us about some of the, this new legislation that employers and employees in New York need to deal with. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Thanks so much. Well, the Whistleblower Act is actually retroactive to January 26, and it may come as a surprise uh, for many. We were all scrambling, you know, to start this new year, hopefully COVID-free, and we might have missed this one. But the whistleblower protections in New York have expanded, and now 
it protects employees who complain about any actual or suspected violation of any law. Prior to January 26, 2022, they would only have whistleblower protection if their complaints related to a specific danger or public health and safety. So there's truly no exception at this point. The only, uh, you know, argument that an employer can make if they fire someone who complained is that uh, there was no reasonable belief about what the employee was complaining about. We have to wait and see what that means. It's so interesting. First of all, I have a few friends named Rania. So do I you? Know. You do? Yes. Okay. So, so I know I how to pronounce know your one name other correctly. Rania. So that's great. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, second, second of all, um, so we've really seen, or you know, Bloomberg News has been writing about a shift towards labor, the likes of which we haven't seen in decades. And I know when you were at Syracuse, you were the editor of the Labor Lawyer. Um, and the digest there. So you um, do labor law. Do you agree that we've seen a big shift towards uh, the rights of workers? I I do see this shift, and I see more coming. I don't have a crystal ball, but I have intuition, and I think there's going to be more and more of a shift, and I think union negotiations are going to be more aggressive, um, you know, toward the labor side. I think employers need to uh, gear up. Yeah, we hear more and more stories. Uh, Amazon, the yep. uh, the union, um, want to vote there. Starbucks. Starbucks. Yep. Um, and these aren't, you know, nationwide. These are in specific areas. But we also have seen um, average hourly wages continue to rise. Um, and, and Paul was just talking about disclosure rules. So what's the story now? They, uh, companies have to disclose what they're paying to employees who come into the office as opposed to employees who work from home? No. Effective uh, May 14, New York City employers, not New York State, just New York City now, uh, the law changed slightly, actually, two days ago. Now it applies to those employers who employ at least 15 employees. Whenever you post an advertisement, whether it's internal or external for any available job, ah. you have to provide the salary range for that job. And failure to do so is going to be deemed an unlawful discriminatory practice and comes with a fine of up to $125,000. I see. So internal, external, meaning like uh, inside of work, outside of work. That means if my manager sends around a group email and says we're looking for a new director of East Coast operations, um, she has to then include the salary range if they've done so for an external posting. Uh, you have to do it for both listings, but yes, yeah. your, your analogy is correct. By the way, in terms of working from home, Paul and I were talking about this earlier. Um, if you work in New York, you got to pay New York City taxes. And a lot of people who used to work in New York City offices now telecommute in from Connecticut or New Jersey or Florida mm -hmm. or Texas. Do those people have to pay New York City income taxes since they're not physically coming to this place, even if um, you know they remote into computers at, uh, on Manhattan Island? Uh, the employee's income tax is going to be based upon their residence. I don't know if these employees have changed uh, their residence officially or not, ah. but uh, that's on them. But the employer may have to register to do business in a state that they're otherwise not registered to do business in because of this uh, telecommuter that they have. Interesting. So, Ronnie, when you talk to your clients – is is it is hybrid the way it's going to be 
going forward. You know, I still hear surely some, they're prepping for that. Some Goldman Sachs executives trying to hold steady. No, you got to be in the office every single day. Bank blah, America blah blah blah. Bank of America required uh, workers to come back in June. But what do you what are you seeing from your clients? I think a lot of uh, my clients and and just um, you know other business owners who I know who are friends. They're worried that if they proclaim that it's a five-day in-office work week, that they'll lose employees. And so several of them are easing into returning to work and having a hybrid uh, workplace. One is because, again, they're afraid that they'll lose their employees. And two, there's still some uncertainty with the pandemic, and they don't need any liability. But I think ultimately we are going to go back to, you know, in-office work because it's easier to collaborate and when everybody is working from home it's different than if we're in a meeting and uh, two people are on the phone or on zoom whatever people are using and everyone else is in the conference room um i can understand that although i i can under i can imagine a future in which we all um work in the metaverse i know oh, using boy. that term makes it sound <laughs> weird i know but you know what <laughs> Try and think of it as a, like a Zoom call where we, that we all go to, and then we can all walk from our Zoom desk to the Zoom cafeteria or to the Zoom you know, coat room. I mean, it doesn't seem that strange to me. I wonder how the legal issues change when you go from uh, an in-office work situation to one where we all work in the cloud. Well, there are... Uh several, you know, things that will arise. For example, you know, workers' compensation insurance, it's mandatory and uh, it's based upon where the employee is working. It doesn't even uh, matter where their, where their residence is. So I could have decided to go to Hawaii and work from there during the pandemic. My company would have to purchase workers' compensation for me in Hawaii. And then there are all of these issues surrounding, well, you know, what happened to you? What injury happened? And was it work-related? And was it during work hours? And as we've heard several people say, working from home is convenient on one hand, but inconvenient on the other hand, because there's a blurring of what is uh, what am I doing for work and what am I doing yep. for myself? There's also, you know, unemployment insurance. You'd have to purchase it wherever it is the person is working again. And then uh, employee reimbursements. This you know, varies yep. from state to state how aggressive the reimbursement policies are. For example, in some states, right. you have to pay a portion of your employee's electricity bill oh, and internet yep. bill yep. because that's your new office. Yep. So there are a lot of things um, to consider, and, right. and that's why I think as these things percolate, we're not. Yeah, everybody's going to have to figure it out. Everybody's going to figure it out. All right, Ronnie, thank you so much for joining us. Ronnie, Set Home Managing Partner, Set Home Law Group. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.